Hello. Uh, welcome to the Insurgents episode 12. And this is Rob Rousseau. What's up, man? I'm here with Jordan Ewell, <laughs> the co-host of the, the Insurgents. Not much is up. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, of course, we're down here in the, the basement of Insurgents Global HQ, the kind of bunker, the, uh, you know, the fallout bunker that we had, we had thrown into the design when we were kind of dreaming up this whole crazy project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie, folks. It's been a rough week. Uh, it's been really rough to kind of adjust to this new paradigm and, you know, I'm trying to hang in, I'm trying to keep it all together, but it's, it's difficult right now. You know, it's been a, it's been a really crazy week and it's just seeing how this, this whole situation can possibly stretch kind of indefinitely into the future. That's a really difficult thing to kind of wrap your mind around. Yeah, I, I don't know what the future has in store for us or what we can prepare for, but like, I haven't really wanted to say anything because I don't want to be yeah. seen as like, you know, too needy, but like maybe just between us, there's some things that I've noticed around here. Maybe you've been feeling it too. That just like, you know, maybe they could just be a little bit better. Yeah. I think I see where you're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you want to speak on that or do you want me to go? Or? Well, I mean, I mentioned last episode, the mini fridge situation in my office yeah. still has yeah. not been resolved. Uh, all my diet sodas are now room temperature, which oh is, I'm so sorry. You know, it's, it's fine. Well, it's it's not fine. Fair to you. I guess it's not fair. <laughs> no, um, that's been, that's been problematic. Um, the whole, mm-hmm. you know, lunch spreads that are, that our interns have been setting up for us. Eh, you know, yeah. they're doing their best, I guess, but it's been a little lackluster, uh, the sort of deli meats and cheeses and all the Thank different you. things that, yeah, yeah, that they've been setting up. It's just the quality is not really what I was expecting when we, when we kind of set up this whole this whole thing. I mean, yeah, I I get maybe like once a week, maybe twice. Two, we have we had cold cuts three times this week. What the fuck yeah. is that? We <laughs> we really do need to switch it up. Uh, I'm thinking maybe some kind of a, maybe like a salad bar situation one day we could do. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Is there, is there no Applebee's nearby? Look at Google Maps. <laughs> yeah. I believe Uber Eats is still functioning. So yeah. I don't see what the problem is. Okay. But I mean, part of the issue is that we normally have the four or five interns. A couple of them have been kind of quote unquote calling in sick lately, mm-hmm. which is... I, I mean, if I was that age and I would, I had been given this really great opportunity to come in every day to Insurgents HQ and, you know, b- make my dreams happen in the way that we're kind of enabling, I feel like I would appreciate that a lot. But, you know, these are kind of younger kids. They're just at a college university. Mm-hmm. I guess they don't really have the same values. And, you know, it's it's fine, I guess. I guess this everyone is... comes from different sort of situations. But Yeah, I mean, this is the entitlement mentality that we see plaguing this generation. We've got kids who are, uh, like you said, fresh out of college. Oh, my mom and dad uh, got me this job because they're venture capitalists and invested in uh, the Insurgents podcast and now have a controlling stake. Oh, look at me. I'm I'm the cool unpaid intern. No, what we're doing here is giving you an opportunity and we're giving you... uh, we're giving you exposure. 
which is highly valuable and no other place has that. I don't care if you want to come to me and say, oh, uh, our country's leader said that uh, all non-essential businesses must be closed. I don't think you understand that this podcast is essential to me and my profitability. (laughs) Absolutely. It's essential to to my personal... You know, my personal brand, number one, my my mm-hmm. sort of my bank account mm-hmm. um, and my money real good right now, or it was before this yeah. kind of situation happened. Yeah. Uh, but it's also just a vital service that we're trying to provide to America here. And it just, when you see these kinds of like, I'm seeing flat, flat fizzy water. I'm seeing, you know. <laughs> Do you know um, what else? You want to know what else? <laughs> what, what, what else are we seeing? <laughs> I was. I asked Judy, our HR person, to yeah. get. Now follow me. Key lime Lacroix. And you know what she? And you know what she? That's a simple ask. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's you could you could get that. It's delivery. widely available. Yeah, she got regular lime. You expect me to drink this shit? Just to start off, everyone, I wanted to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who uh, has been tuning into the the episodes of The Insurgents so far, um, and particularly everyone that after the last episode uh, subscribed uh, via Substack. We had a bunch of people subscribe uh, on a monthly basis and a couple of, of people on an annual basis. I was really uh, surprised and delighted by the, the response to that, uh, just as I've been really happy to see the, the audience of this show grow. And um, as we mentioned last week, we're not we're not going to be having any like bonus content for now because we we decided uh, since we're dealing with this like global crisis and everyone's uh, finances are are uh, there's a whole lot of uncertainty over everything, uh, so we're not going to have like paywalled content at this time. But th- I was really happy and delighted that that a few people did subscribe at uh, theinsurgents.substack.com and just wanted to say thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, the uh, the Discord community. Yes, um, it's popping so already. Subscribe. No, yeah, it is a nice little community budding there, and I, I, I enjoy it. So, yeah, with, with the subscription comes uh, an invite to our Discord server. Where we can hang out and talk politics and react to the news as it happens, which is kind of fun. And uh, Rob and I were just talking about some other stuff that we'll have in store coming soon. I was actually so. eventually hoping to, like, take calls and stuff and, and have, like, voicemails and... and interact more people like that are part of the community as well so i think we're gonna have that kind of stuff happening in the future we're all kind of figuring this out as we go along um you know uh, jordan and i came up with the idea to do this show like a week before the election started (laughs) and uh (laughs) it's kind of you know we've been kind of flying by the seat of our pants and now it's turned into a you know it was a podcast just covering this election and now it's like kind of morphed into something where i think we're uh, covering this this global crisis that's unfolding. So we're figuring this out as we go along, but we're so happy to have everyone uh, following along with us and the people that have subscribed and are, are kind of uh, joining the community. It's really, really cool, and we're, we're really, really happy. Um, I just wanted to... There, we, there's a few things I wanted to get to before we get to our guests here today. I think the number one thing that I wanted to address is that this conversation that we've been having over the last couple of weeks, and this has been happening a lot online about about uh, the Democrats getting f- outflanked economically right now. Um, 
because I think that, you know, there's some people that I saw, you know, pushing back on this. And I think it, it is important to have some nuance in this discussion. Um, because, okay, number one, when I think we talk about this, it's not because we're saying, you know, uh, Trump good, Democrats bad, or that we're trying to praise Trump. Like, no, um, that, that Trump is bad, orange man bad, I agree. Um, but there is something that's happening here where um, they are just beginning to use this kind of like economically populist language to respond to this crisis. And it's not, it's not like broadly based across the entire conservative movement or the entire Republican party there. They are still very, very wedded to things like austerity. And, um, and there's, they're very, many of the Republicans still are very, very against this kind of economic populism. But I think the point of having these conversations is because you see this kind of seed being planted and you can see how in the future, that's where things could possibly lead. Um, and that's why I think it's important to point this out and it, uniformly across the democratic party as well. It's not, it, there's not this broad based, you know, opposition to this kind of universality and the, it, responding to this crisis with, with, um, you know, it's kind of economic populism. There are many people in the Democratic Party that do get this. Uh, I saw a, a paper come out of the House, which I think was chaired by uh, Maxine Waters. What was that like a special committee that did that? Yeah, she chairs the House Financial Services Committee. Um, yeah. And there was some great stuff in there. Like, like this, is, I think, is the frustrating thing about seeing what the Democratic Party leadership is doing right now. Because there is a lot of energy and excitement for this kind of economic populism right now, they could be coalescing around this message, uh, and they could be, you know, they could be heroes to this whole generation of people that are being uh, affected by this uh, economically, that are losing their jobs, that are losing their benefits, and that are not able to make ends meet right now. Um, and I think that's the frustration: is that there is a clear divide between certain people in the Democratic Party or, you know, on the peripheries of it, such as Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party leadership who seem to be digging in their heels and are just like firmly against this kind of economic populism. And when we talk about this conversation, I think that's why it's important to point it out. It's not that, you know, the the, the Republican Party all of a sudden right now is embracing these left wing ideas when it comes to the economics. Uh, but you can see how there's a situation that could possibly turn into that developing and that's something that needs to be kind of stamped out really quickly, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is this is an opportunity. I mean, both – this is a cynical way of looking at it, but it's the reality. I think this is an opportunity for both parties uh, to chart out a new course for the future because this is going to, you know, permanently change the landscape of how we see the world. Sad, sad, as sad as it is, this is going to be like a – something we never forget. Um, it's something that will have a serious impact on the world and – the future of each party kind of hinges on this moment. And when you have just the, even the initial optics of people on the right saying, we need to give everyone money now and democratic leaders opposing that and saying, no, we need to opt more for enhancing our social safety net programs and more of a reactive solution. We you know bogged down by paperwork and means testing and all these types of things. The initial reaction, I think for a lot of people was like, this is, so starkly different than what we're used to and it it represents in my opinion uh not only a shift of the overton window and what's normal and what people have come to expect but also kind of a realignment and we're living through i think we're living through a political realignment right now we've talked about it in the past with right-wing populism uh and we certainly talked about it last episode with democrats and means testing and all these sorts of things and being a little bit more uh conservative economically um 
I think we're we're going through a political realignment. People just haven't caught on yet. But this is a moment for progressives and leftists to really speak out and shape the future and take control and control our own destiny on this. Um, and don't be afraid to do so, because I think a lot of people are using these moments as a cudgel to beat back criticism and actual well-meaning critiques on the left and trying to silence people by saying, like, no, we're in a national crisis. You shouldn't be raising these concerns right now. Let's just get through this. That's what they're trying to do to Bernie with the, with the election. Like, no, this is the moment where we actually need to shift the party left on this because we can't be we can't be in this national crisis and have people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi arguing against robust economic proposals. And sure, the, 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 the crock of shit that the right wing uh, folks laid out, uh, it, it is it is it is insufficient. And I don't think it is what, oh no, it, not even, I think it's just not what was initially proposed, but we cannot have Schumer and Pelosi getting into the weeds and splitting hairs on, on various levels of means testing as the way forward. We need, we need to be way out to their left and make them walk us back because this is all about compromise. And for so long, Democrats have, have entered these types of situations already compromising, trying to trying to meet in the middle at the onset when really what they're and this is what Republicans have done well for years is start at the most extreme right wing position and make Democrats walk them back a little bit. And I think libs just do not understand that. And we have to be way more bold in our proposals. Yeah, because their whole ideology, it's not about economic populism. It's not about policies. It's about compromise and it's about being bipartisan. And you can't really have a two party system where one side is obsessed, like pathologically obsessed with being bipartisan and uh, working with the other side and the other side that's just ruthlessly trying to destroy the other, the, their opponents. Uh, it's not really a, a, a way to like enact meaningful reform that's going to actually help people. And yeah, like you pointed out, whatever whatever the Republicans end up end up doing, it is going to be the like con man, used car salesman version of economic populism. Uh, it won't be sufficient. Uh, it's going to leave people behind. It's going to be it's going to punish people like migrants and and other people and exclude people. But the fact is, if there's a situation where over the next couple of months, people are like a sizable percentage of the American population are just getting checks with Donald Trump's name stamped on them. And then you have like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer kind of acting like the penny pinching uh, people that are obsessed with austerity and making sure that no one has access to this. That's not going to mean good things electorally for the Democratic Party. Um, And I I think a great example of what like we're seeing this right now with the polling, like I think a poll was released today showing the approval of, of Trump's handling of this crisis at like 56% approve of something or something like that. And this is a situation where he specifically has in ways that we totally know about that are not secret, that we are aware of what happened completely bungled this whole situation leading to the economy cratering leading to most likely thousands and thousands of actual people dying in America. And like the the opposition to this has been so feckless that people look at what Trump's doing and say, "Yep, this is great, good job," because he's the one he created the crisis, but he looks like he's responding decisively to the crisis, and people are responding to that. And meanwhile, the front runner for the Democratic primary, the person who was uh, anointed by all by the Democratic establishment, that had this like billion dollar media operation ready to like cover his tracks and back him up every step of the way that had this coordinated situation where all these different candidates dropped out at this strategic time to make sure it was him. 
he's Joe Biden is nowhere to be seen. He hasn't been on TV since fucking Tuesday night. Uh, the last time I saw him, he was like standing bewildered at the podium, not looking like he knew where he was or what was going on. And this is who the Democrats have decided to rally around. Uh, he has not been out there, you know, pushing forward bold responses or doing anything at all. He's not even on TV. No one knows where the fuck he is. Uh, and this is the situation that Democrats now are faced with. Uh, this is the guy that they really wanted to run against Trump, who is apparently like electable and the, he could easily defeat Trump. This is not what I'm seeing so far. This is not a formula that's going to lead to good things for the Democratic Party, even though Trump now is historically vulnerable. Uh, this is not a situation where they're in a good position to to defeat him, which is remarkable. It's actually remarkable that they've bungled it this much. <sighs> You said it. I, yeah, it's so funny to see people on Twitter. Where's Joe Biden? We need Joe Biden in this moment. No, you got what you wanted. This is yeah. This is your guy. This Here is you what go. you Good wanted, job, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I'm seeing like Jennifer Rubin. I'm seeing Jennifer Rubin saying like, "What? How? Why would Joe Biden even concede anything to Bernie Sanders? He should just he should just ignore him and just ignore the whole movement." So. You have like people like Jennifer Rubin, like it or not, is like a Democratic Party liberal thought leader now, as fucked up as that is. Uh, but she's just saying, yeah, ignore that whole movement. Ignore all the young people that got involved in this uh, movement. Ignore all the immigrants that that organized like tirelessly to try to elect Bernie Sanders. Just ignore all that. Um, completely just tell them to go fuck themselves and just rally around behind Biden, who is not even capable of going on television in a crisis and reassuring people and, you know, advancing proposals for how you should deal with it. It's a fuck. It's fucking ludicrous, man. Yeah. Uh, the I want to point out that, you know, Bernie has been doing live streams and national addresses and fireside chats like multiple times a week since this really started. Um, and yeah, we get an occasional press conference from Biden where he's, you know, seemingly unaware of where he is confused by his wife being there um and just it really shows i mean they are keeping this guy away from the public spotlight and i I, bernie got a lot of criticism this week for for swearing at the reporter and in that clip where he was like i'm trying to solve a global fucking crisis or something like that or fucking global (laughs) crisis and it's just but if you tell if you tell a voter to go fuck themselves when they ask a question about your record that's presidential though that's 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 good yeah you want that it's (laughs) <laughs> it's good when a it's good when a moderate does it. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's just it's it's so disingenuous. But Bernie has been you know actually trying to center this and prioritize this, um, it, despite criticism for him uh, not answering questions about the election, not trying to politicize it. Like this is just he's doing his job. But Biden is nowhere to be found. But you know Biden's the strong leader we need apparently. Yeah, and and this is it. I mean, this is exactly why Bernie should not drop out of this race and should continue being a presidential candidate because he has a huge platform right now to draw a sharp contrast with what the establishment of the Democratic Party wants and, and you know, what what he's proposing. And what he's proposing was the exact thing that would um, be not only win an election and defeat Trump and do all the things that we're told constantly would not be possible, but would be hugely popular and would not only be hugely popular and win elections, but really legitimately help millions of people. Um, So I got to say, just from an outsider perspective here, Jordan, it is incredibly fucked up because it's very obvious to me and I think many other people around the world that Bernie is basically the person who is the most historically suited to confront this exact moment in American history, uh, which is why it's uh, really 
fucking depressing to see millions of people uh, lining up to pull the lever for Uncle Joe Biden, who spent his entire career, um, you know, when he wasn't speaking at the funerals of segregationists and, you know, uh, uh, incarcerating a generation of Americans and doing all this other shit. Uh, just basically saying that, oh, not th- all this stuff is pie in the sky. It's not possible. And just the most I saw, there was a tweet from Biden that was just like, we're going to we're going to ask CEOs to not do stock buybacks. <laughs> and it's like, that, oh, good, yeah, good job. That's going to that that'll show that'll learn them. That'll learn yeah. those CEOs. If you just ask them nicely, who didn't? Why did we think of this? No one thought mm-hmm. to just say, hey, can you guys knock that off? But that's what that's the strong, steady leadership from Joe Biden that the the Democratic Party is rallying around right now. I don't get it. I I don't understand. Well, I don't. Yeah, me me neither. (laughs) It's 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 it really displays like all the flaws and pitfalls of the Democratic Party. So you like we talked about in the last episode, like the Democrats and congressional Democratic leaders trying to defend these piecemeal um, means testing based approaches. when in reality they should be going for a robust cash in hand type of approach uh it just shows that they can't they can't argue for things that they might otherwise do or might otherwise argue for because bernie's on the race still and to do that would then lend credence to his platform and they can't do that because those are extreme proposals remember <laughs> but 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 also like and now with biden and these ceos asking nicely it's like he's not willing to go out and say like if i'm elected i'm gonna ban all of this stuff because those are the same people that are donating to his campaign and his super PAC. Yeah. And he wouldn't do and that. He, he won't upset them. We all know that. Exactly. Exactly. He won't do shit. Well, um, as I said, <laughs> I that this is exactly why Bernie does need to stay in the race, regardless of what the math says or, or, or what anything says. Um, he needs to be in that position to like advocate for these policies because he's the only one making the Democratic Party look competent and good right now. Um, so he should stay in the race. I don't know what the possibilities are or what can even happen anymore. I mean, we've, I mean, the whole fucking process is completely, has no legitimacy at this point. Um, so, uh, I just think you should stay in and keep advocating for this stuff because there is a situation that I think it, everything is so malleable right now that America could be in a position where regardless of what happens, uh, a Sanders agenda could become a reality if it gets enough people decide to start asking for it or demanding it. Um, so I, that's why I think he should stay in and, and I hope he does. And um, let's get to our guests now. Cause we're already getting a little bit long here, but we actually have a really interesting show. I think um, today, because we're going to be exploring some international responses to this uh, coronavirus uh, crisis. Um, so we're going to be speaking to Eleanor Penny. She's with Novara Media. We're going to be talking to Eleanor about the, the Boris Johnson's response to this and what's been going on in the UK over the last couple of weeks and months. And um, you want to introduce our other guest? Sure. And Joel Birch. He is the singer in The Amity Affliction. He's from Australia. And a good buddy of mine. Uh, he will. He, but he's also like a, a rapid consumer of political news in both Australia and the United States. Um and similar to you, Rob, it's just always funny to me when people are like enraptured by American politics, but I guess it's just like kind of my, my narrow minded view, just like I don't really follow anyone else's, but the way American politics influences so many other places, it's, I, I don't yeah. know, for some reason it still mystifies me, but Joel is like, We should get to vote. We should be allowed to vote in American elections. This is ridiculous, actually, that we can't. We all, we all can't vote. <laughs> You're going to get it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Well, it's it's that it's that, and it's just like it is entertaining. It's like it's very stupid and entertaining. It's it's hard not to get pulled into it. But yeah, when it comes to things like uh, you know foreign policy and climate policy, um, these things affect the entire planet. We're we're all kind of like living in the the world that America has kind of cobbled together over the last couple of decades through their own electioneering and their own policies. So. That's, I think, why people like Joel and I become so obsessed with this, because not only is it stupid and entertaining, but, you know, it, it <laughs> impacts everything. And it would be cool if something good happened in America. You know, that would that would be kind of nice. Yeah, dream on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but also uh, because, you know, this 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 crisis impacts different industries in various ways. On top of the Australian political update, uh, Joel is also going to we're going to talk to Joel about how this impacts the music industry and how you can support uh, artists uh, and musicians and entertainers uh, as you go forward, because this is a, a, a unique circumstance specifically for people who do live performances like Joel and other folks. So we'll talk about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the main reason this is going to be interesting as well is because both the UK and Australia uh, in the last year have uh, had elections and elected like oafish uh, conservative dipshits, um, you know, and that's been I think a big factor in how both of these these countries have responded to this current crisis. So it's there's going to be some interesting crossover there. I think I am looking forward to speaking to each of them, and uh, we will be back with I believe Joel right after this. our small town and the pub was completely packed oh no yeah, so great <clears throat> yeah people people are just uh, <laughs> not paying any attention uh well they're probably going to start paying attention pretty yeah. soon i would yeah, imagine so my friend is a doctor and he's saying we're about a fortnight behind you guys so uh whenever i think you guys have started to see oh i don't know about rob how's canada going actually um kind of it depends like quebec where i am i think I don't want to like get ahead of myself, but we may have kind of shut everything down in time to stop it from spreading really, really badly. Yeah. There's been some cases, but also the the testing has been good. Like a lot of people have been tested. Yeah. There's been a lot of negative tests and like, so, and there's a lot of people waiting right now yeah. and everything's been shut down. And I think mostly people are listening. Um, so I, that's it. I don't want to, I don't want to speak too soon, but we might be okay here. I think Ontario and, and different places in Canada are a, kind of a different yeah, story. Yeah, my friend lives in, uh, but we'll in see. Toronto uh, and from the band, and um, he said <laughs> just two days ago, or yesterday actually, he said people are just going about their lives as normal, which is uh, pretty cool. Jesus. Um, yeah, I guess no one thinks it's going <laughs> to yeah. affect them. And then there, there are all these like... It's like a superhuman um, mentality. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's it's selfish, but I think it's also it also comes from uh, like mismanaged leadership because our our prime minister like a week ago um, was like, no, nothing to worry about here. I'm going to the footy this weekend, and everyone's yeah. like, uh, what the fuck, yeah. dude? Like, <laughs> how can you be saying that? And then it came out that um, he's really good friends with this Pentecostal minister over here, or evangelical, called Brian Houston, who runs this church called Hillsong. 
and Hillsong had a massive women's conference going on in Adelaide from the Friday to Sunday, and it was like uh, $200 a ticket or something, so they would have lost out on a shitload of money. <laughs> and it finished oh, yeah. on the Sunday, and he... Uh, you gotta let that, you gotta let that Hillsong event yeah, go so on. He, um, Otherwise, that'd be a disaster. Yeah, he actually he left, left the Hillsong church like two years ago or something, um, or, or three years ago, but it seems to me like I'm not a conspiracy guy, but it, it happened... Um, in a rather timely period when the church was going through the Royal Commission to Child Abuse. Uh, it was found that the current pastor's oh, yeah. father was like a, a like multiple sure. sexual abuser pedophile. And they were like, oh, that's that, uh, that looks pretty bad. So maybe you should go to a different church under the same umbrella, <laughs> Assemblies of God. So, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, it's about solved. time for me to say goodbye to this particular uh denomination yeah. well yeah he's he, he moved slightly slightly away from it but same shit different bucket okay. as i like to say yeah yeah <laughs> well we should uh, before we go on we should introduce you to the show joel um it's joel birch welcome to the insurgents man and thanks for coming on the program today thank you for having us us me plural i do have bipolar so yeah the royal us could be, yeah. could be accurate <laughs> in any given moment but thank you for having me <laughs> <laughs> how are you holding up uh you were just at the beach a little bit ago so yep i mean you have some some sort of escape uh but otherwise how are things going down under yeah they're good i'm my my son my four-year-old son not my i've got an older son who's at he's fine and everything's great he's young and healthy and fit and hasn't been exposed to anything so he's good but my um my four-year-old got a stomach virus so we've been here like locked down for like three days and i'm i don't like that <laughs> it was it was it was nice yeah. to go to the beach i mean we can we can at least uh still do our part with social distancing at our local beach there's not too many people go there um all the tourists seem to be packing to one of two areas so easy to stay clear of them yeah it's one of the things that makes this time so stressful i mean it's stressful for everyone obviously but i think if you're a parent it kind of adds this extra element onto it because i have a four-year-old as well and he was we've been here for a week now self-isolating and he was kind of running a low-grade fever the first night and normally that's just something that happens with kids kids are sick all yep, the time yeah but like now it's taken on this kind of sinister thing like you kind of can't help but start to panic about any of these uh, minor know, things so, that normally you would just kind yeah. of say oh it's yeah, fine i'm i'm like quite uh, measured when it comes to to most things I've, I've, my friend who's a doctor i've been friends with since i was six years old so i've had him as a as a constant with everything and like every time i've panicked when Vogue was first born he's like hey man it's fine give him some panadol <laughs> some nurofen everything's yeah. chill so i was i was actually fine but um yeah it my wife got a, got a little bit worried she's very concerned for the family she's a very much a, a mother yeah <laughs> But yes, it is. Um, I was. I was. Uh, I, I mean, I do a lot of reading, and I know that children can't be super affected by it. But then you don't really know. I mean, they're not testing hundreds of thousands of, of toddlers, you know. So they might just be carrying it. No. Carrying it around for the for the benefit of the rest of us. Pretty scary. Pretty scary times. Yeah. But glad everything's going okay then. Yeah. Well, I, it depends how you look at it. It's going. It's going. <laughs> it's going. <laughs> yeah. It's going well for me. <laughs> 
don't know if it's it's yeah. I don't think things are going to be the same in 2 weeks. Overall, not yeah, so much, not so but much. I yeah. feel like the uh the old old white men <laughs> in the patriarchy are having a hard time believing that this is happening and trying to trying to just yeah. say no as much as they can. No, nope, not happening. No, everything's fine. Economy's great. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you saw, but Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, made a comment where he's like, the worst that could happen is uh, 3.4% of the population dies. That's oh 11 God. million people. Oh, my <laughs> yeah, God. Yeah, like, that's a significant <laughs> amount of people. Like, that's just here. Like, that, that yeah. that's tens of millions, and if not hundreds of millions, around the world. It's insane, isn't it? Oh, yeah. How it's... can you be so apathetic? And it's not like... I feel like people are looking at this through such a narrow lens. Like, they're saying, oh, you know, like... The, First of all, they're being very dismissive of, of older people, <laughs> like very, yeah. very dismissive. And then the second thing is like, aren't they worried about the follow-on effect from that? Like if you if you lose that many people, yeah. like that, that sends shocks through the entire economy. And I know they're very economy-driven, so wouldn't you be panicking like well and just the fact that no one can work right now i mean it's yeah. it's grinding the global economy everywhere yeah. to a complete like halt everywhere uh, and we're we're only in the very very early stages of yeah, this too and that's the are, kind of really freaky like, thing when you start to wrap your mind yeah, around we're that like 10 days in to really serious consequences like yeah what the the large crash happened last week and they're still just like yeah, yeah everything's everything's gonna be fine <laughs> yeah, we're basically still just like the roller coaster is just still ramping yeah. up. It's not even reached yeah, the top of I the crest like yet. Just put the safety harness on. <laughs> like <laughs> we're sitting in the bay. <laughs> Everyone's screaming about the, yeah. the first jolt of the brakes being turned off. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. You had mentioned it earlier, Joel, and this is really something we want to get your perspective on. Uh, you you mentioned ineffectual leadership in Australia and how that's impacting. Uh, the response times there and how that can impact flattening the curve. Um, so this this whole episode, we're talking about basically failed leaders around the world and how, you know, the United States, Great Britain and Australia has recently elected just absolute fucking buffoons who have no business being in these <laughs> positions. And I, you and I have talked a lot about Morrison and, and maybe you can give our listeners who might be who might not be as familiar with Australian politics what uh, the situation is like there and, and who who is at the helm and how that impacts you. Okay, so uh, Scott Morrison has been, <laughs> has, been, has been given the tag uh, Scotty from marketing. So I think marketing people around the world have a, have a pretty great reputation as being soulless profiteers, um, just, just trying, to, <laughs> trying to milk the last dollar out of everyone, right? So he is the only tourism yeah. minister of Australia to ever be sacked from the job and he got sacked from the job um and this is like so the tourism minister is is generally speaking a a place where politicians go um say mid-career like they'll they'll go from a lower level bench position right. or, a, or a cabinet position they'll go and do one of several several jobs in several industries that are, are generally speaking um conservative run and then they come back to a to a more senior position within the party so he actually got fired by someone from his own party um, for giving grants to his friends um, directly, <laughs> without even looking at the competition. Um, <laughs> and they were like, they were like, Jesus. "Hey, you can't do this." And he's like, "Okay, sweet. Well, see you later. I'll take my bonus, and I'm just going to go back to being a politician. Everything's fine." So. 
Malcolm Turnbull is like uh, what you would what you would call a, a fiscal conservative, but social liberal, which is a very it's like one of those disgusting blanket terms for shitty, selfish white people. Um, <laughs> and he is one of those. He's very rich. He's making like uh, I think twenty seven million a year in interest off offshore bank accounts. So he came from the private sector. So he's he's you know. He comes in, he's talking about environmental change. Everyone thinks this is great. He's he's actually just more obsessed with being in power. So he panders to the, the sort of Tea Party-like fringe of our, of our right-wing party. Things go horrible. Scott Morrison comes in. Um, Scott Morrison goes into the recent election last year really, really badly. Looking bad. His approval rating is disgusting. Yeah. No one likes him. He's smirking all the time yeah. on TV. But... It looked like it was going to be kind of a, an e, a, a relatively easy win for Bill Shorten. It if did, I remember correctly, it did. But right? Bill Shorten, so the party had good favorability, but Bill Shorten never had likability ever. No one liked him. Um, yeah, bit of a bit of a wet towel. You know what I mean? Just like an empty suit. Yeah, basically, he was he was really strong and effectual as a as a union boss, but when he came into politics, he just didn't sort of bring that vigor with him. I think he was much too concerned with uh, the optics of being a union boss, um, because just like in America, they've been very very heavily demonized here. Um, and he came in, and everyone was like, okay, well, this guy sucks, but at least we're going to have a Labour government. But Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister still at this time, um, and he directed all of this funding into swing districts in Australia for sports. So the Federal Minister for Sports had something like uh, $2 million, right? And that, or two, two or 200 Two million sounds more right. I'll, I'll look that up right now while I'm talking about it. But um, anyway, uh, they, what they did is they color-coded all the swing districts um, in Australia and they poured oh, – here we go – Hundred million dollars it was. So they they poured money into all these districts that could have that were looking like they were going to swing to Labor. So they had the Liberal government pouring money into them. So they basically bought the votes of any district that was looking to swing to Labor. So it was a targeted a targeted outpouring of money, very illegal, um, which they used to swing the election back to Morrison. So he had a very like very much a surprise victory. Um, not long after that the fires started in Australia. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I was about to say. It's incredible that yeah, after this so, like stunning victory by Morrison, there's been two like world historic crises now in Australia. Yeah. He's been, and he's been completely unequipped to deal with, with either of them and has fucked uh, both of them up in various different ways. He is, he is Donald Trump, but without the, uh, he's got the, the more Australian uh, sort of stupidity to him uh, he says uh, one thing he said last year when he got elected which was hilarious for for anyone with a brain he um he he really went on this on this sort of marketing spiel about if you if you get a go then you have a go and everyone gets to have a go and if you have a go that you're going to get a fair go and that's like that's not verbatim but that's about the stupidity level can't argue with that yeah and everyone was like oh right you get a go to have a fair go to get a go to have a go all right we understand (laughs) so australians are all out to have a fair go yeah Yeah. so the bushfires started he's been he's sat i think 20 days or something in in the 
in Parliament since being elected, and he's like, I need a well-deserved family holiday. So he disappears over to Hawaii. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's great. It gets better. He disappears over to Hawaii. He doesn't tell anyone, doesn't tell any of the press corps. Um, So the the media are meant to know these things so that uh, during a crisis, they go straight to the um, the assistant prime minister. So no one, no one knows. So no one knows who they're meant to be contacting. The fires are raging. Eventually, someone posts a photo of him. Some tourist, some Australian tourist in Hawaii is just like, uh, "Why is this guy here?" And he's sitting there with his wife, he's drinking a beer. Um, and then a photo pops up of him, like smiling, large smile, thumbs up, drinking a beer with some other Australian expats who are over in over in Hawaii. I think they're on some like a, a naval naval resort or something like that over there. And I, I, I mean, like presumably a more secure kind of hotel for for parliamentarians. Anyway, everyone's like, you should come home. And he's like, it's too hard. Um, it's th- that's what he says. I'll be on the first available flight back, he says. And he stays there for three more days. So the most powerful person in Australia Jesus. can't figure out how to, how to get the uh, you know, our version of Air Force One back home. It's too hard, he reckons. So he comes home. It's a disaster. He goes on this on this tour of, of the south coast of New South Wales trying to shake people's hands. I'm sure you saw the videos. Absolutely disgusting, like forcing people to shake his hands. Everyone's like, this guy sucks. Uh, the Murdoch the Murdoch media goes into full swing and, and sort of come, come mid-January, We've, we've seen a, a complete about-face and his favourability rating starts to go back up because Australians are stupid and the Murdochs uh, own about 70% of our print media, which is still how um, I'm presuming a lot of the people polled get their news and then you have uh, similarly conservative media from Channel 9 and Co and Sky News, which is another Murdoch um, news agency, which is, which is sort of trying to be Fox News for Australia. Uh, they are just constantly spinning it in favour of the PM. So that happens. That winds that winds down, and uh, here we are with uh, COVID nineteen taking the place of the fires. And this <laughs> motherfucker just does not know what he's doing. He's um, he just I don't have you watched much footage of him because he just smirks constantly. So he's I've yeah. just seen him like doing like response to the to the the teens going out saying don't do that don't we can't <laughs> yeah no. I, it's not a good idea. Yeah, but I mean... I can't do an Australian yeah, accent. Well, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be insulting. No, I'm not insulting. It's the, <laughs> it's the worst accent on the planet. But, um, yeah, all... <laughs> no, it's great. It's wonderful. All this guy does is smirk, right? So it always looks like he's laughing at reporters who are asking him these very serious questions. Um, and, and, and he's just like, no, go outside. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. That's, uh, you know, that's not our problem. It's in Italy, for example, and doctors in Australia are just yeah. losing their minds. Like, what are you doing? Why are you saying this? This is absolutely insane. Like, we need to self-isolate now. This is going to get out of hand. We're, we're very ill-equipped for this. Um, and uh, so he only changed this tune uh, just a few days ago, I think. I try... I, I mean, I try not to follow what he's saying too much because it, it makes me extremely angry. I feel like I'm disconnected enough from yep. American politics that I can sort of watch what Trump's doing and and, uh, and just say, well, thank fuck he's not here. But we do actually <laughs> have our own version <laughs> in Australia. And he sucks. Um, 
Yeah. So another thing that's happening um, is I think I mentioned to, this to you, Jordan, when when you saw how much money he was he was releasing for the for the fight against COVID. Um, yeah. So I just I quickly read up on it earlier. So what has happened is first the first thing that happened is um, the government diverted 3.9 billion dollars from our national disability insurance scheme which basically gives uh, people with disabilities that can still function in society gives them some money so that they don't have to be uh, worried about you know starving and, and housing and becoming homeless and, and all that kind of stuff so we have a, a fairly robust healthcare system where they can still get the the healthcare they need um, but it just props them up so they can they can still work um, to their capability and it and it doesn't affect their their government income too much um, but they still get money and then the next tier is is for people that can't leave the house um, but can still you know like they have someone that just needs to bring them groceries they can still cook and, and clean and, and keep their their quarters you know um, they, they're living hygienically and they're fine and they can sort of operate at home on their own but they can't go outside the next is for the carers of disability um, sufferers so it's uh, I shouldn't say that of disabled people rather um, and that's for children with disabilities, uh, carers of parents with disabilities, loved ones with disabilities, and then just the most compassionate people on earth who just dedicate their life basically to, to making sure people with disabilities uh, live with some dignity. Um, yeah. So you, generally speaking, that has been a government agency that is, has bipartisan support. It's never been defunded. Um, but we're in this uh, sort of this last decade, we've really seen the Conservative Party move towards a Republican uh, frame of mind where they're really pushing for privatization. And, and that, that actually started in the 90s with a guy named John Howard, who is celebrated over here for, for this amazing surplus. Um, he, he ran a surplus for seven years in a row or something. But people don't talk about what he did to get the surplus, and that was to sort of suppress wage growth, um, cuts to welfare, cuts to health and education, and he sold off a large amount of, of public um, utilities. So our, our phone service used to be nationally run, um, and he sold it. And our electricity also used to be nationally run. So they had regulated, regulated electricity prices. There were still private companies supplying it, but they couldn't uh, price gouge, basically. They had to sort of compete with the government. So they would, like, add services and, and all, all the stuff you expect from a, from a good competitive market that also has a government option. They're all gone. So now uh, our electricity is, is privatized and based heavily on coal, and um, and it's just sort of feeding this beast that is is privatization. So that's what's happening here. He's um, taken the money from the NDIS. He's put it towards a bush bushfire. Uh, sorry, a drought a drought relief fund, which uh, he he put together seven billion dollars in funding for that. But it's it was something like most of most of that money hasn't been used. So he just shifted the money from. Uh, our welfare for disabled people into a bushfire relief, uh, drought relief fund, which is just sitting there. It's not doing anything. Um, so <laughs> it's it's amazing. So he he pulled 3.9 from 
NDIS, and then he pulled a further 3.9 from the Building Australia Fund, um, <laughs> which was uh, which is really really good. You know, that was for sort of future infrastructure to keep keep Australia up to date with the um, you know growth of the population. <laughs> Pretty good. So <laughs> after he did that, yeah, he uh, he then we had the bushfires, and then so he moved he moved uh, like. 2.4 billion or something 2.2 billion over from that fund into the bushfire relief fund so he keeps saying all these numbers this is what i was saying to you jordan he was like yep we've you know we've moved uh 1.5 billion or we've allocated 1.5 billion of spending for the for covid and it sounds amazing and everyone in the media is like wow look at how much money is put aside for this crisis that's great but no one's really reporting on where it's coming from and and it's it's sort of a circle jerk of of fucking over taxpayers basically and and yeah. now that the now that covid is the current crisis what's happening is only 20% of people affected by the bushfires are getting the assistance required um on a on like a, a personal level right so where he has decided to spend a lot of the money for the bushfire relief is a hundred million dollars for primary producers, seventy-six million for mental health, sixty million for local governments, fifty million for wildlife, forty million for charities. Totally unnecessary for a government to give to a charity. Um, and then, yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, like, what, what, what is the point in that? That's like you're giving money to other people to run something that you're already running concurrently. So. I don't know what's going on there, and that is, and then it's like uh, 15 million for financial counselors and for rural financial counselors, and 10 million for financial counselling. So he's essentially committed money to counsel those people that have lost everything, but isn't giving them the money they need to get back on their feet. With, with this current crisis, like, is it grinding the economy in Australia to a halt to the extent that it is in the U.S. and and here? Like, are people stopping going to their jobs? there as well now and, and if so is it like does morrison have any plan whatsoever to you know help these people or or beyond these kinds of like vague bullshit so uh you know moving money around to different locations that he's been doing in the, in the past couple of months and years <laughs> well i don't think so so all, all the onus at the moment is on the businesses um and morrison hasn't told anyone to do anything um and so cool yeah. So, okay. So our welfare system, which hasn't hasn't seen a rise in in welfare income in some time, I think I think well over a decade, and it's been a, a bipartisan issue where they've both sort of there's there's this weird attitude of, I, I guess it's it's a worldwide thing anywhere where there's a welfare state, people think that people receiving welfare are bludgers or or they're not effective members of society. Sure. Yeah. They're not contributing in any way, right? So at the moment, if you're on Newstart, um, you get $489 a fortnight. Um, I don't know what you're meant to do with that, but um, he's all he's doing for, for people on Newstart, which is about the balloon, um, I think we're about to, I think we're set to lose about 480,000 jobs in the next week. Um, and that's going to mean we, we have uh -huh. an unemployed, uh, we have like 1.2 million unemployed people in Australia, if, when, when or if that happens. So because that's coming, he's, um, he's, he's just decided that they're going to bolster New Start temporarily during this crisis. But I'm, I'm not sure. That, 
that only began being spoken about this morning, so I'm not sure how that's going to sort of play out. Um, as far as, as other industries are concerned, I really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, for music, this has just decimated the music industry immediately. Yeah. Um, venues are shut. Venue staff are out of work. Bar staff are out of work. Um, you know, like every, anything you can think of, like security guards, uh, people that bring the barriers. So like venue hire companies are going to be out of work. So and this is going to affect everyone, I feel, except for those people who are privileged enough to work an office job and can take their work home with them. Um, but even now we're seeing, yeah, well, okay, so yeah, that can yeah. work from home because uh, even if those environments can be tightly controlled, that that is how the disease spreads by people continuing to go and interact with other people That's and right. going out and yeah. going out into the world. Yeah, and so back to my, my earlier statement about the ineffectual leadership we're under. It, it's hard for for people to know what to do when you've got the leader of the country, much like Trump, saying everything's fine because, of course, large businesses and the banking, the private sector yeah. are like, okay, well, we don't care. Like, <laughs> they, you know, they're happy to lay people off at the best of times. So, sort of, I, I'm sure they see this as a bit of cleaning out of the closet, you know what I mean? And, and they can make some, make some yeah. profit from it. It's not like, you know, like banks may, may, feel the brunt of this in some some ways but who fucking cares like these are <laughs> these are like companies paying the, yeah. the heads of the companies like 200 million dollars a year or something plus stock stock buybacks so i i think it's it's so insane that that we don't have leaders who are just like go the fuck home and stay there unless you have to <laughs> yeah like i don't we can everyone can afford well the bosses don't like that board no they could they don't like it but every fucking government can afford to give people money for like two or three months to avoid a six to twelve month economic meltdown that they're just so focused on the short term that they don't want to do it yeah it's almost like when you try and plan your economy just on a quarter by quarter basis like that it leaves yeah. it makes it difficult to make long-term plans like yeah. that it's kind of interesting how that works especially out especially because mm. all these fucking conservatives are just so focused on a surplus they're like oh we're running this into a surplus surplus yeah. surplus look at our budget our budget's great by the way our government canceled their budget yesterday so they're not releasing a budget to the Australian people <laughs> because they they came into into power and they were like we're back in the black and they were using ACDC like in their ads and they had fucking <laughs> like, they were walking down the corridors of parliament. That's how you know they're like, cool. Yeah, they were trying to be cool, yeah. slapping the paper on their hands. Check this out, we're back in the black. Next minute, bushfires, <laughs> COVID nineteen, and they're just yeah. like, hey, fuck it, you guys don't want to see a budget because it's really yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah it turns out we were in the black because we slashed all our uh, preparedness to deal with these natural disasters and pandemics yeah, and they're like well actually Whoops. we only ever had seven billion but what we're going to do is just shift it around so that every news cycle it looks like we're spending money when we're actually not going to allocate any of the seven billion to anything so we're just going to leave it in the bank ah <sighs> i uh yeah cool. fucking cool man <laughs> So one thing uh, you had mentioned, so your your industry, you work in the music industry, and people who work, you know, in live events or, or touring, things like that, that that kind of brings everything to a grinding halt. Um, 
So for people who are listening to the show, who, you know, have shows that they were planning to attend over the next few months or, or, or however, what, what should people understand about your industry and, you know, music and art and entertainers in general and how they can still support uh, people whose works and creations that they enjoy? Keep the ticket if you can, because tours, tours might be getting um, postponed, but they will be back in some form or other. So the best thing to do for us um, is to keep the ticket. And I mean, everyone is about to be so hit by this financially. I don't, I don't know how to responsibly sort of suggest that they help people out. Um, I think in, in times of need, it's obviously best if, if the sort of lower income brackets like ourselves try and look out for each other i guess it's just moving money around in each other's pockets but it still feels nice to be helped so like buying buying t-shirts or anything sort of keeps the economy going for musicians um and as much as we're getting hit i think the the people who are about to feel the the real brunt of it are, are the people that are not on fixed incomes like um our crew you know what I mean? Like our tour manager and our, our guitar tech and our drum tech who, who have, you know, we tour for six months of the year. And generally speaking, that makes up a, the bulk of their, of their um, earnings each year. You know what I mean? And, and we're looking at right now like a, an at least four-month break from touring. I know our tour manager said if, if we aren't able to go ahead with our tour in America in July, uh, he's not sure where his rent's going to come from. Because because of this crisis, you can't just go get work in a shop right now. You know, like like everyone is mm-hmm. everyone is is yeah. about to feel the the pain financially. And I I don't know. I don't I don't. I'm hoping that governments around the world realize uh, how foolish it is to to sort of fight uh, quote unquote socialism that isn't really socialism. It's it's just sort of the government doing their job and looking out for the well being of their of their constituents and the population of their countries, but we'll see, I suppose. Well, one thing that I do find kind of interesting about this moment is that this whole uh, coronavirus pandemic situation has kind of been like a a climate change trial run, like in a, in a, a shorter timeline where you had a similar kind of thing happening where we could see this terrible event coming in the future uh, from a couple months away. And people didn't take it seriously. They continued just acting as if everything was normal. Uh, we were not prepared. And now that it's like on top of us, now it's we're starting to react to it. And now we're starting to figure it out. And in a way, it's similar. Like on a longer timeline, we're looking at the same thing with, with climate change where we've known about the the like iceberg in the distance that we're approaching ever so slowly. Um, and it seems like, judging from this, it, it's like we're going to just continue carrying on as if everything is normal until we're really unable to like live in denial anymore about the negative effects that well, we're causing. Like the, um, and it's this similar, similar yeah, kind of thing to that point. I think it was in 1980, um, a climate scientist in Australia said almost, almost to the T when our bushfire seasons were going to start, start being like out of hand. And it was 2020 that he said, um, he said, we'll start to see worsening effects of, of bushfires and the bushfire season extending. So it arrived one year early, but for, for a scientist to be that on point, um, it's just so yeah. insane. And yet you've got the, the, I don't know what it's like in America, because I think it's very similar where the, the politician will say, well, I'm no scientist, so I can't comment. And you're like, 
So you're yeah, saying it's you're, like, you're not going to listen to the scientist because you're no scientist. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. That's correct. Understood. Yes. You're not a scientist, so you're not going to listen to the scientist. <laughs> so you just listen to the, the fossil fuels industry because, of course. Yeah. And they're, they're actual scientists that work for the fossil fuel industry actually like found out about climate change in yeah, the first in place. The 50s, but though. We don't listen to those scientists like either. in the 50s, right? Like, I think Shell had, had scientists that were like, oh, hey, this is coming. Yeah, they knew yeah, a very so long time like, ago. You better uh, get all this oil out because it's, it, this can't last forever. And they're like, okay, let's go ham. Which, uh, which sort of countries can we <laughs> destabilize, steal their oil, <laughs> and uh, get in and out? Yep. Who cares? We'll all be dead and rich. Keep the party yeah, rolling. It's so it's so crazy, and I think uh, one thing I, I see missing from from media coverage of of climate change is the fact that the people that are wealthy likely don't care because no matter what happens, they're insulated from it because they have the means to go wherever they want to avoid. Yep, yep. Like it's going to affect. In fact, a lot of them have places in uh, New Zealand. Like that's where a lot of the the billionaires are building their apocalypse exactly. uh, bunkers. And anywhere like Denver yeah. is going to be a hotspot for wealthy people because it's going to mostly sort of um, miss the effects of it. And then I think you know up north, up north in Washington State, wherever there's mountains, you know, I think it's just going to be these crazy rich havens that none of us can afford to live in. And so we're left with uh, like <laughs> great you know catastrophic <laughs> sea rises completely empty cities and and climate refugees going to increasingly poorer and poorer places which i'm sure is going to be really good for the social welfare of of all all us humans yes <laughs> well and this is another kind of dark thought that i've been having recently at this as this pandemic has kind of spiraled out of control of just like you know people are start to it's a natural kind of feeling to try and think about oh when are things going to return to normal and you know by the summer, you know, certainly you know, th this will have died down a little bit and then we'll, you know, we'll be able to kind of return to some sense of normalcy. But then it's just like, oh, no, then we're just getting into wildfire season. Exactly. then, And, you know, not just in Australia, but California and Alberta and, and all these other places where the wildfire season is starting to get longer and get way more out of control and, and affect so many people. And that's when you kind of realize is that's what that's what sort of the climate crisis is, is just that. This is what our immediate future holds is just kind of jumping from crisis to crisis to crisis <laughs> yeah, now. Absolutely. And like, that's just something that people, are, it's, it's difficult to wrap your mind around because it's, it's kind of terrifying to think about, but that is what, that's what the 2020s are going to be all about. Just, we're, we're going to move on from this to the next crisis to the next one. And it's, it's not, that's not stopping anytime no, soon, unfortunately. Not. And I, you know, what's, what's crazy to me, um, and I've seen this covered by people who are who are sort of um, think it's a beautiful thing, and then science, climate scientists who are like, uh, "This is ecofascism." Is <laughs> um, people celebrating yeah. the return of, of dolphins, and you know the the water in Venice is clear again, and and all this kind of stuff. You know, like the the air quality in China is. We are the virus. Recent. Yeah, people are like, "We're the virus," blah blah blah. And um, climate scientists are like, what's wrong with you? Like, that's you, you're being an eco-fascist. Like, what are you decrying the or like happy about the death of civilization for the for the sake of the earth kind of thing? Um, but I do think it is interesting how quickly the world can heal itself, which just sort of for me really shows yeah. the insignificance of human beings um, in the greater scheme of things. You know what I mean? Like, so. Any any attempts to to negate climate change are for the benefit of humans and humans only. So I don't understand why we're not just doing it. Because I mean, <laughs> it's, 
and that's all we have. We're human beings. We don't have the option to morph into into anything else. You know, there's there's no uh, crazy spiritualistic movement out there going to turn us all into birds or anything. So um, I, it's just it's <laughs> we're just living like our whole entire existence is pointless. Yeah. Well, that that does, I guess, to say to contrast the fucking dark thing that I just said. I think that's one positive thing that I'm thinking about from this uh, crisis. The way everyone has kind of responded all of a sudden, even though it's scary and it's like maybe maybe it's too late, but everyone has kind of responded with kind of collective action. Everyone's kind of social distancing and and quarantining themselves. And you're seeing these like we're like you might point out we're seeing these these big empty streets and how that's immediately having an impact on the environment and, and you realize that when it comes to fighting climate change as impossible as that can feel when you look at just like our charts of emissions and you just see that line just going up and up forever just how can we ever stop this but you realize that we can stop we can all just decide to stop driving our fucking cars everywhere we can just shut these industries down we can do it any at any time we want we just need that like push off the cliff that's going to make us say okay we're changing everything about the way we do our the way we organize our society now and i feel like you know that as scary as this moment is it kind of points to that being a possibility as well yeah and i i like I like that. I feel I feel that as well. I feel like there is cause for optimism during this period of you know of, of major upheaval because it is showing everyone from sort of every walk of life and and sort of everyone across the political spectrum what can happen when people band together for the greater good. And you know it's it's clear that this um, pandemic is affecting everyone from every income bracket, every every part of the planet is seeing it uh, sort of come to affect them in some sort of way so I think if if we can really focus on um, on how much solidarity there is coming out of this from population to population then it's it's possible to see that you can have an impact I think I was talking to my friend our tour manager Sam about this recently uh, just about the the effect that you can have as an individual is is highly local right but it's it's connected to the people around you and that's the only influence you can hope to have i mean you don't have to be out here as uh, sort of in this apocalyptic frame of mind when it comes to climate change thinking well me not eating meat isn't going to affect anyone because it will affect someone like i know that having the, our tour manager and our merch guy being vegan um, in our touring party certainly helped me to just commit to it. Um, I've been on and off vegan and vegetarian for like 20 years or something, or coming up on 20 years. And and for me, it was like the final step. I was just like, why am I doing my thing for the environment? Like, I can do this one small thing. And I think if, yep. if we're all realizing, you know, like social distancing, it's it's one small thing, but it's highly effective. And then if you start doing it, then your friends start doing it. And then that sort of spreads very fast. And then all of a sudden you have a, a society of people who are accepting that their small piece contributes to the lar- larger movement and the larger protection of, of our planet and yep. people on the planet. There we go. I think that's a great place to leave it. It's um, uplifting. Yeah, we need a, we need that right now, we don't do. we? Yeah. yeah, it's probably the only positive thing I've heard in like a week. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Joel. Thanks for coming on of the course. program and, and talking about all this stuff thank with us. Uh, do you want to just let everyone know where they can find you? Uh, yeah, you it was a pleasure. Find me on Twitter at JoelDTD um, and the same on Instagram, but my Instagram is really just a band page, so probably wouldn't bother. 
<laughs> you can bother. It's got no. He's also he's he's a great photographer, so his pictures are on there too. Oh, They're yeah, good. That, on a different one. I've, I'm a man of many social medias. Oh. <laughs> I hear you, man. Yeah, it's how we exist. Well, thank thank you for coming on, Joel. Of course, thank you so much for having me. And we are back with Eleanor Penny from uh, Novara Media in the UK. Eleanor, how are you doing? How's it going over there? <laughs> um, well, I, as a general rule of thumb, global pandemic, not great. A solid six out yeah. of ten. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm currently, uh, I like, I like fled London uh, in order to like come and like keep a close eye on my mother. And also because I've got one of those like fun pre-existing conditions where the government was like, eh, it's fine. Only the old and the sick will die and the rest of us will Ugh. strive on. <laughs> Ubermenches renewed and muscular into a future of, of like of a golden dawn. Yeah, and it's um, and that's me. That's me. I am the chaff. So um, <laughs> Great. Yeah, it, it's because like everything was always like it's it's been a real shocker of a few months in the UK because we've recently re-elected, you know, a, a, like a, an authoritarian... How do, I, how do I describe him? He's like a kind of churlish child emperor who hasn't been fed his, like, his daily supply <laughs> of pudding. Yeah. And I am so fascinated by people who are like... <laughs> Well, he seems to be responding badly to a crisis where people need help. It's like this was what we were. This was his pitch to us. That was his yeah. whole thing. But yeah. So, um, in the context of everything already going terribly, I feel like my world picture has been weirdly vindicated. Um, in and not in a good way. Like that's. I take no joy in that. Yeah. Because I was gonna say, you know, the last time we spoke. It was right before the election. There, it seemed like there was a possibility for something good to maybe happen in the UK. But, you know, or or this also is another option, I, I suppose. Uh, but I remember it was, it was really sad because I had just spoken with you. And then, I, you know, I was following the UK election. I was watching Novara Media that night and I, I tuned in and you were kind of having a hard time holding it together. And it made it so much more painful to the whole experience. I was just going, oh, no, Eleanor. No, no. I was so yeah. sad. I was like, I was, I was really not having a, a great time because we were all watching no. it unfold in the, in the Navarra Media green room, uh, holding hands as the, as the figures rolled in. And uh, my very good friend and co-editor, Dahlia Gabriel, um, saw the look on Andrew Neal and Laura Koonsberg's face and immediately was like, we fucked it. We've lost it. Look at uh. how happy they are. And she was, and she was right that day. Uh, so yeah, but it is the the kind of strangest thing to get your head around is how rapidly people who pegged their whole careers in uh, driving home a kind of public contempt for Corbyn, the Corbyn program, everything that that represented, national investment, making sure there was slack in the NHS to deal with crises, that kind of thing, are completely unselfconsciously, it seems, U-turning uh, on that without without an idea of you know we we could have had we could have had this right we could have had a pro-social uh, investment program yeah. without a global uh, pandemic not that that's necessarily <laughs> what the government is doing but it's it is just kind of strange and I so want to kind of have a mic off off the record conversation with them to be like you th 
how do you rationalize that to yourself? Like what stories do you tell yourself to make to make sure that you can sleep at night? Because we could have yeah. had policies that already could have saved lives. We have a higher yeah. infection rate than Italy. Italy has a higher death toll than China, a country with 1.3 billion people. So it is just all a bit frustrating, shall we say. I'm finding it a little bit frustrating. Yeah, I hear, I hear you. No, I did see, <laughs> it's an amazing amount of, of mental gymnastics people are doing because I did see some conservative commentary dipshit uh, in the UK, which there's, I mean, that's a, that's a wide swath of people, yeah. obviously, but... <laughs> Someone saying, like, showing a picture of the empty store shelves at a Sainsbury's or whatever and being like, this is what it would have been like under Corbyn's UK. And it's like, but but it's currently Johnson. I don't. And it's just there's no point in trying to have this conversation with them because it's just just useless. Oh, it is one of those. It's, it's kind of like a perfect Teflon coated sphere of idiocy that there seems to be no entry points to. Like everything just kind of rebounds off it because it's so like it, this isn't we're not talking about this hypothetical so, you know yeah. alternative you just like you realize this is happening right I, it's like yeah. a favorite genre of <laughs> of startup where uh, which is like paying thousands and thousands of pounds for something that it would otherwise be used to scaremonger about like what it would be like in soviet russia like yeah. um you know, like silicon valley like alternative living arrangements where it's just like you sharing a wooden bunk bed with 30 other people and paying yeah. two thousand dollars a month for the <laughs> exactly and it's like disrupting the housing market it's like no it's just it's, it's just people not having enough to live a place that's to a live different thing yeah. <laughs> um so what I mean, I was also going to say, too, because it's an interesting parallel with America right now, because currently there's an election going on in America. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, oh, really? so there is an option for for America to go down that path. They can still choose someone that's advocating this kind of like, uh, you know, a very uh, approach based in solidarity and public funding and having mm -hmm. and, and having all this infrastructure there. And <laughs> fortunately, we all know the American people are going to make the right decision on this one. And and. <laughs> Well, you knocked that it candidate. out the park Obviously, this it would time. be ridiculous to do anything else. <laughs> I, I this was like you know a month, six weeks ago when um, the Bernie surge was really kind of feeling like more of a more of a tangible possibility right now. And I was looking at America, being like, "Don't you dare give me hope! You don't know what I'm yeah. going through right now. I have been far <laughs> too vulnerable a place to be given hope by the likes of you, Yanks, coming over here with your robust socialist platform and your adorable grandpa. God damn it. But um, he is actually like Bernie is is smashing it right now in terms of actually yeah. using his platform to hold the government's feet to the feet to the fire. And he seems to kind of he, he seems to be weirdly sort of disinterested in becoming president right now which is uh, like obviously speaks to his uh, integrity as a person as a politician right but um it does just boggle my mind even further as to why people think joe biden is electable i i, I actually kind of wonder if it's if it's like a if it's a cultural thing that i just am not keyed into because like in the UK we have like a very different set of signifiers about electability it's also about class um, but you know we have an aristocracy yeah. um to to prop that uh, to prop that up and like mimicking the signifiers of aristocracy is what like electability is kind of all about uh, and also you know being prepared to like 
bomb brown people. That's the other big one. Um, yep. But it just, he's so, he's so incompetent. Like he's, he's so uncontrollably horny and he can't string a sentence <laughs> together. I know that's what you guys like sometimes, but it is just like, this Love is not, it. the Hillary thing I got, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't agree with it. But, you know, there is a sort of, you know, slick business, no nonsense, lean in feminism kind of thing. Like that's got an established constituency of like bankrupt liberal feminist hawkishness, whatever. I get it. Joe Biden, I'm like, he's just someone come and collect your weird uncle. I don't (laughs) I, I, I really don't get it. But, you know. I do. Jordan, do you have any insight on this, on what yeah, American please, voters are thinking right now? Tell, tell I don't. I don't get it, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think it's just like, it's name recognition that a lot of them are relying on. And Joe Biden looks like, aesthetically, like like the standard politician. And I think they just kind of, they feel comforted by him and the, the association with Obama. It's a return to normalcy in a time when everyone's scared. At least they know what, or assume they know what it would be like under him. Uh, I've got concerns about his <laughs> mental capacity and whether or not he's even healthy right now. We haven't seen him in multiple days, and like they're making he hasn't been really on TV weird, since Tuesday, and they're making really weird excuses <clears throat> for why he, he like, can't, can't live figure stream. out the he can't yeah. figure out the Zoom. As soon as he figures this out, he's going to be on there all the time. <laughs> they yeah, need he's to like modify his house. Meetings. It's like it's this really bizarre thing. They need to like redo something in his house. What what the fuck is that? <laughs> what, do you need to remodel your house to like? Get on Zoom or Skype. What are you talking about? I think I just, it's just really bizarre lies. And it's so funny because the media normally, like, they should be holding his feet to the fire and asking, oh, and they're yeah. like, hey, give him some time here. He needs to figure this out. This is techno- This is like Im- technologically impossible to figure this. If it was Bernie, you'd have to be a genius over. to figure out how to go on the internet and, yeah. and talk to people. Exactly. <laughs> it's just so... It's the, it's the equivalent of, like, a dog ate my homework, but instead you're... You're stumping for the levers of power in like the richest economy in the world. It's like, okay, <laughs> I get that he's like in his seventies and it might not be like the most natural thing, but you you are you do have literally millions of dollars at your dis- disposal. Like hire like go out, point at any seventeen year old and they will be able to help you. <laughs> yes, get your get your grandson to come over. He's gonna yeah. figure it out for you. It's not exactly. that bad a deal. Yeah. I mean that's Getting your grandson to come over at the moment is like, you know, biologically risky. Yeah, I guess but... that more is problem, but that is a problem. Yeah, I mean, that is the other um, the other big thing we're battling against in, in the UK. So it's like this weird blitz spirit-esque thing. I don't know if you, if you would have caught this, but the other day on um, uh, Channel 4, they were interviewing people out in, I want to say Harrow, was the suburb of London. And uh, and they went to this packed market and like just very busy street. Everything looked like there was totally normal. No pandemic here, guys. And they were interviewing people who was like, who saying, so how's social distancing going? And people were like, eh, you know, I don't think it's that bad. Like I'm just kind of carry- carrying on. And it was like a certain generation of people yeah. who um, there was this one woman like, who said you can't give into it yeah you can't that's yeah. letting it win and it's like it's not sentient by, <laughs> by strict biological definitions it's not even technically alive it won't like it doesn't care whether or not you, oh it's just so funny and um and <laughs> brendan o'neill i think wrote a lead column in the spectator today 
um, talking about how much of like a tragedy it was and a treachery it was that people were closing the pubs and this guy from UKIP was saying like, we didn't close the pubs in the Blitz. It's like, you can't catch bombs. You could, like this is yeah. not this is it's it's so bizarre like different situation yeah. different situation here and this is again like like a lesson brexit was a lesson in this the election was a, le- a lesson in this it's like about how deeply rooted and powerful imperial nostalgia is in the british imaginary and how you can persuade people to like not only like vote against their own self-interest in like, like a classic um you know, false consciousness, Marxist analysis kind of way, but also just actively expose themselves to a pandemic virus. It is <laughs> madness. Yeah, that's that Britain soldiers on uh, attitude that's going to get us through anything. That's yeah. going to defeat the bacteria trying to enter my body right now. Yeah, and my, also- my can-do spirit. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna auto inoculate with the sheer force of how much I love my country. Um, <laughs> it's. And, and the, th- the thing that gets me here is that, like, A, the people who are, the people who are spreading it around are, like, think they fought in in the Second World War. And, like, the boomer generation did not, did, like, certainly did not fight in the Second World War. And, the, and how that is manifesting itself is the fact that they're forgetting that, like, millions of people died in the Second World War and it was actually yeah. a very bad thing if you would have been yeah. there. They've and... seen a bunch of movies where people did fight in it, though, and it was yeah. very triumphant and very heroic. So. Yeah, and very, like, glamorized and that kind of thing. And it's just... It's just... <laughs> It's just kind of horrifying because it, that is the that is the sort of gloss and the pomp and the bootlickery on top of like what is the reality for like many many more millions of people like those people are like you know they're in a minority they have a spectator columns they have platforms whatever like the the reality of it is is that um, you know if you've got rent to pay if you're self-employed if uh, if you're business is struggling because of coronavirus which many many businesses are like you know you are forced to not just make the very regular like british hobby of choosing between heating and eating but choosing between like heating and eating on one side and like risking a potentially deadly virus like this is really exposed like the baseline economic cruelty of uh you know certainly the current conservative administration but really you know the last uh the last 40 years of neoliberalization in particular because building fragility into people's lives and building a lack of resilience into people's like economic conditions was very much the point right that was very much the point of uh reforms that stripped away the social safe, social safety net reforms that crushed unions and uh, made people like more precarious, stripped away workers' rights, that kind of thing. And so when people are like, oh my God, this, you know, everyone's really precarious. Everyone's lives are really fragile. It's like, yes, this was the point. This isn't an accident. This is a feature. It's not a bug. Yeah. Interesting turn of phrase there. Um, Okay. So can we just back up, um, rewind a little bit here? Because I wanted to ask you about like what has Johnson's response and, and the, the UK government's response to this been? Because my understanding is that uh, like a week or two ago, when this was all kind of starting to really become apparent that this was a serious problem and the UK approach was basically, no, we're not going to do the social distancing thing. We're going to do this radical different approach where we kind of intentionally expose people to it. and It's going to build up this herd immunity. And then a few days later, they're like, uh, actually backtrack on that. That's actually going to get millions of people killed. So no more doing that. 
And now, so, like, is that correct? Like, what's, what has been the UK government, what have they been doing this entire time? I mean, that is a question to which the, uh, most of the British public are asking ourselves. So, right, first off, first off, huh, big sigh. First off, it, um, they plumped for this so-called herd immunity response. Now, that uh, herd immunity is is not actually how like the government is using it. It's kind of the opposite of how the government was using it. Herd immunity is getting enough people, uh, you know, enough people with immunity to a certain disease, certain pathogen, whatever, so that it protects people who are either more vulnerable or for, for whatever reason uh, can't uh, get immunity. So the idea is like, you know, if enough children say have uh, the MMR vaccine, that means that the like under ones who can't have the vaccine are also protected because they're very, very unlikely to come into contact with anyone who uh, has like an active form of the disease. Now, um, that is not, let's give everyone an active form of the, of the disease and just kind of hope for the best. Because according to the government's own modeling, uh, that their like herd immunity strategy, where we just kind of like do nothing, hope for a short, sharp shock, and then everything gets back to normal quicker is absolute nonsense. Like I read an article where an epidemiologist was like, I thought this was a joke. I thought this was like a really sick joke because according to their modeling, like at least, you know, let's take a very overgenerous estimate of mortality of about 3%, um, which is always higher in countries like our own that have a struggling health service and that have a poor social safety net that means people are more likely to be forced to risk their lives by uh, not being able to socially isolate. In Italy, that is more like, you know, 15% for um, for certain categories of people. Anyway, if we take the 3%, that's at least between 500,000 and 800,000 people dead. That's, I mean, the idea hmm. that any government could announce a policy without running it through the is this going to kill hundreds of thousands of people filter it's just it's mind-boggling and uh scientists have been like actively pleading with the government to take a more active stance now um it is indicative of like the sheer the sheer brain rot at the heart of like the the conservative imaginary where they think that um that like nudge theory and sort of behavioral economics that use sort of small incentives to manage people's behavior and then you get sort of macroeconomic changes out of that would be an adequate response because nudge theory is something that was specifically constructed in order to I guess achieve macroeconomic benefits without the need for expensive state intervention or building infrastructure or things like that the idea is that it's a kind of it's kind of a cheap and cheerful way of, of forming a proxy for like you know the social state and that sort of thing like it's very very 1990s kind of kind of deal yeah. um and the idea that um that that would be an appropriate framework for um for a disease that cannot be like encouraged incentivized nudged for like a disease that has you know, and a baseline biological reality, a demand for things like more ventilators, things like more ICU beds, that that sort of thing. And the idea that that was their first pass, that, that was something that they stuck to for like a key couple of weeks where we could have potentially 
contained infection rates so that they're not, you know, currently, you know, spiralling out of control. I mean, it's just, for me, it smacks of such contempt for people's lives. And we probably shouldn't be surprised at that because we do have a government where, like, literal eugenicists are thinking about uh, public policy. And uh, one of their cheerleaders in The Telegraph came out with a statement being like, oh, maybe this will be a boost to the economy because it will, and I quote, cull more elderly more elderly voters which is i mean it's it's astonishingly cruel but also astonishingly there's like bizarre given that if you are if you are a conservative tactician right lay it like lay any concern for humanity aside as i assume that you will have had to do when you took the job that (laughs) that is your that's that's your voters like statistically speaking those yeah. are the people who put you in power and like so even by a kind of a self-interested analysis it is bizarre and i think the only way i can rationalize it to myself is that okay they 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 said okay maybe over 70s should self-isolate but the idea that okay maybe people need people and maybe we live in a society after all and people have contact with people actually quite a lot was just kind of like not available to their analysis. Um, there was a, and so steadily under public pressure of being like, okay, other other countries are, you know, doing mass testing, other other countries are doing self-isolation, why are we not doing this? Why why is the WHO losing its mind right now, uh, our response? Um, they've slowly rolled out a few more policies. First of all, there was, um, there was like mortgage relief, um, but no renter relief, which is, you know, very key here. And yes. uh, yeah, and then uh, encouraging people not to go to uh, like social spaces and bars and cafes and pubs and that kind of thing, but also not telling, uh, not like demanding that pubs and bars close so that they could uh, claim on their insurance. And therefore that means that loads of people were getting their hours cut, loads of people were getting fired so because businesses couldn't claim on their insurance, therefore they couldn't pay wage packets. Um, and they had no incentive to keep people on because that's still not in any kind of legislation. Like there's no there's no legislation against people being being fired for this. Um, and yeah, it's it was just like a very clear, a very clear distillation of priorities. Okay, it's like we first of all we do nothing because we don't want to spook the city, the city of London, like financial markets. Uh, then we try and protect like homeowners and like insurance companies, and now they're you know they're they're actually after some pressure from labour movements doing stuff to guarantee uh, people's incomes if you are formally employed. So they're guaranteeing eighty percent of people's incomes up to two grand a month. No, two two thousand five hundred a month maybe. Hmm, can't. Can't remember something like that, uh, which is obviously yeah. like like this is a massive improvement, uh, but it's also those that money goes to uh, employers. There's no uh, they they kind of encourage employers not to let them off, but uh, not let uh, let people go. But you know there's no laws against it. Uh, if you're if you have rent to pay, if you're self-employed, if you've got a zero hours contract or anything like that, you are uh, yeah you're still in you're still in deep shit and um sorry i'm just like probably probably taking taking account taking account of it um and so it is like this is not socialism right like this is not the kind of universal basic income that people were uh 
people were agitating for. It's it's like very conditional and it comes along with saddling the kinds of like smaller businesses that like are now getting the stipend with um, an underlying structural debt. And UK businesses already have a massive debt problem. There are loads of so-called like zombie firms which have had to take advantage of like very cheap credit and low interest rates because otherwise with like the like rock bottom investment in their country they basically would have already gone bankrupt so like we won't see the real like economic shock of this until like a few months down the line when either your firms are big enough to get bailed out uh like you know if you're virgin atlantic or whatever and like there's no you know equity demands there's no there's no conditionality attached to that or you're a smaller firm you get saddled with debt you have no real like relief for it and you limp on for a couple of months and then you just kind of have to fire people anyway so yeah this it's i think we'll see the real the real impacts of that in you know in the sort of medium term rather than in the immediate short term now there were talks in 2019 if i remember uh, about the tories planning to sell off parts of the nhs and that would obviously i mean if we're seeing here in the states we are so under-equipped to handle this. And, uh, you know, we could see, like, the the medical system as patchwork and, and broken as it is here, completely buckling under this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is, is do, you, do you know of, uh, if, if the Tories still want to do that if, that, if that's part of, like, the long-term plan? Or are there now calls to protect the NHS in light of this new crisis? So there are absolutely calls to protect the NHS. Um and I think there's there's a lot of uh, like a, a lot of uh, should we say like leftist emotional sentiment that can be kind of mined <laughs> through people's like romantic attachment to the NHS and also NHS workers and rightly bloody so because they are currently being um, being forced to work without a proper protective equipment and like they're not getting tested and and this kind of thing so uh, which is really exacerbating a current uh, a current staff shortage of like uh, it's to, of tens of thousands of people and um so yes there are calls to protect the nhs the problem is right that there have always been calls to protect the nhs and like that was yeah very- i mean i was gonna say luckily luckily now because of brexit and you don't have to do those EU payments anymore. So obviously yeah. there's tens and millions more pounds available to deal with this crisis. Probably. Thankfully, you dodged a bullet there. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, can you imagine? Can you imagine how much worse this crisis would have been if we hadn't done a Brexit? It's just yeah. about its madness. But um, I, I think like <laughs> because protecting the NHS it sometimes becomes more of a sort of like emotional slogan rather than like something about like brass tacks and policies and that kind of thing like it's going to have to be like the work of uh, like the work of political opposition to turn that kind of outrage into actual policies because there was a massive you know there was massive splashes made on the part of like the labor movement in the last election about how Boris Johnson was going to sell off the NHS how the uh, Tories had crippled the NHS Uh, And, you know, people and that was something that people could really relate to in their lives. But either people really didn't uh, like people didn't believe that um, the Conservatives would sell it off the NHS because it would be so unpopular. People just trusted Boris Johnson. And also people just kind of, I don't know, maybe take it as like an almost an apolitical fact of British life and British identity that it's sometimes 
it's sometimes hard to talk about, you know, that like, yes, no, it might end. And it is in fact imminently in the process of ending unless we do something now. It's like saying that, there, you know, there won't be, you know, like suddenly we won't be able to access like fresh air. People will be like, what? You know, of course, like, what are you talking about? Like, of course the NHS um, will still be there. So I think there is, there is that kind of like strange, uh, yes, strange contradiction in the heart of how much, uh, how much us Brits like bloody love our health service. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I do kind of have some, some cautious hope that this crisis has been so exposing and it has really put a brick through the Overton window. It has firebombed the factory where Overton windows are made. So like to the to the extent to which more people are independently calling for maybe we should ha- we should have more slack built in the NHS. Maybe we should pay um, hospital cleaners much more. These kinds of like baseline things and they're arriving at them just kind of at their own behest because they seem sensible and you know I yeah, I obviously agree um but because the the Labour Party is in such a is in such a, a mess right now and it's in the middle of a leadership election there's not really like one person to like come out and like have that public faith to be able to be like this is a political problem this is because the Conservatives have defunded the NHS for, uh, you know, more than a decade. This was uh, this was as the result of a series of political choices. Blah 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 blah. And frankly, the conser- the Labour leadership candidates aren't doing that. Like they aren't doing that much to 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 do that. Like they're doing some stuff, sure. Like you know, I like Becca Long Bailey. She's good, but she's no, like, she's not yeah. doing the kind of like daily barnstorming that say that say Bernie is doing. And you know, I want her to do that not just because, like, you know, I would prefer her as a leader over Keir Starmer, but because I think bloody someone, like, someone should be doing that. Someone needs to do that yeah. because yes, there has been movement from the government, but like that will only translate into something more substantially positive if we continue to like if we continue to scrutinize people and like god knows the british media is not going to do that <laughs> no um i think a general a general good litmus test is just to wonder if the british media is going to if you're ever wondering if they're going to do something good or continue doing very very bad things <laughs> it's probably a safe bet to go with the latter there because a uh, very very terrible industry full of bad people uh do not recommend anyone reads any or engages with any of that stuff. Really bad. I'm I'm curious as to how it seems to you guys from the outside because I guess from where I'm standing, from my very very partial perspective, it does seem like such like like ludicrous state media type oh, yeah. situation. Does that is that is that a common thing? Do you, do you all know about? Yeah, I mean, just I, definitely seen? just observing the the last UK election and really just paying attention for the last five years, basically since, since the rise of Corbynism and seeing the kind of double standard that's at play between the, the barriers and the hoops and the, that he has to jump through in order to appear like uh, prime ministerial and, and appear to be like, have leadership qualities. And then you have Johnson just like bumbling and falling down and being racist and, you know, getting people killed. And just like, oh, jolly good. Uh, that uh, Boris Johnson, really the one to lead the country into the future there. 
And it's just like, what is going on in this country? It's very strange. Yeah, I don't get it. It is the it is the um, kind of it's like Trump said, you know, I could shoot a man in the street and no one would mind. And Boris Johnson was like, hold my beer. Hundreds of thousands yeah. of you are going to die. And like um, <laughs> genuinely 51 yeah. percent of people are like, I think he's doing a good job. Like, yeah, funny. great. You on, and we're seeing that play out in the 51 percent. Yeah, and we're seeing that play out in the U.S. as well. Trump's approval rating right now of how he's handling this crisis is at, like, 53% or something like that. Um, Despite him, like, obviously and in ways that we know about completely mismanaging this to the point that now many, many people are going to die because of it. But uh, And we're seeing the same kind of thing play out in the the, the Democratic primary as well, where um, for some reason one person is always framed as electable and they're the ones that's electable and then the guy that's like pointing out these like really sensible solutions and you know carry able to carry out like nuanced arguments and thoughts and they're just like no this guy's this guy's just like a wild-eyed crazy uh you know uh, interloper here that we have to get rid of so it is kind of yeah. a similar dynamic also the fact that like joe biden is now currently to the right of the current trump administration on things like housing. yeah that's not you don't want that <laughs> yes, what is the point of view? I just want to explain. I just want to know. Yeah, uh, uh, there's but, no point. Yeah, <laughs> there is no. No point. one knows. But that that could basically no one be knows. his his campaign slogan. Like, eh, why not? <laughs> yeah, just just uh, just go back to bed. Just vote for Joe Biden, and everyone can yeah. just relax. You don't have to think about any of this stuff anymore, and it's, everything's just going to be okay. And I go just, back to bed, America. Go back to bed, America. Not this day, but it just. It, I'm I'm really genuinely kept awake, like in in these days, by just how the government is not like. It, you know, it, it talks in these kind of weirdly mechanical terms about like, you know, infection rates and mortality rates and that kind of thing. And, and Boris Johnson came out and did like literally did a Lord Farquaad of some of you may die, but that is a sacrifice I am willing to make kind yeah. of thing. But <laughs> it, it still seems to have um, like it seems to have so little weight for them that this will be people's moms and dads and people's yeah. grandparents and people's like people's siblings and people's children and that kind of thing like this is i i feel like very much like oh i'm in a history textbook right now like this is this is where shit really yeah. really uh hits the, hits the fan and i am just I feel, I feel yeah i'm like because the government response has been been so inadequate and like yes it's better now but like this is like the minimal stuff that we needed a month six weeks ago and uh, people are going to really really suffer and like you see nhs workers coming on tv saying like we are going to lose our colleagues and we have had to make peace with that consultants with pre-existing conditions going home to like draw up their will because they know that that's what it takes and that is the real like you know human tragedy that Boris Johnson is talking about when he's joking in cabinet meetings about quote-unquote operation last gasp and it does it I think a lot of people are feeling very kind of abandoned right now and very very powerless which is which is maybe why the mutual aid groups have have been so successful because people just want to do something like people want to do anything to feel less powerless in this situation yeah and i think before we sign off here i think the one thing that i have noticed that 
I think ties together someone like Boris Johnson and someone like Joe Biden and even Trump in a way. And I noticed this in the last debate between Bernie and Biden, where like if you're paying attention to like the words that are being said and the policies that are being raised and, you know, Bernie's critique of American foreign policy, things like this, mm-hmm. you know, you I think any sensible person should agree with that. But the reason that people get drawn to Joe Biden is because when you see him talk, he does just seem kind of like vaguely charming and he seems like a nice guy and he seems like kind of trustworthy. It's this very like old school politician way of just seeming like very down to earth and and having that affect and you realize how much that matters to so many people more than policies and more than foreign policy and more than what are the specific plans that I'm using to, to fix our healthcare system in this. They just want someone that it seems like kind of fun to hang out with. That's kind of seems nice and genuine and politicians like Boris Johnson and like Joe Biden have mastered this and have kind of used this kind of affect to, to pursue a lot of uh, a lot of terrible policies throughout their careers. And I think that's another reason why Trump is successful as well. Uh, just because he has that kind of affect, um, but that's that's the thing. This is like a rem. This is like a remnant of the last few decades of politics, and in the crises that we're now facing in the 2020s, because it's, we're just going from this pandemic and then it's going to be the next climate crisis and the next the next big problem. We need people that do have actual solutions, and politicians like Boris Johnson and Joe Biden are like representative of this very old school way of doing things, where it's just pers- about completely about your personality. Um, and that's what that's how they speak to voters. That's how they bring people into their sort of tent. And um, th- these people are just completely unequipped to deal with with <laughs> the, what we're facing uh, in the 2020s. I sort of I sort of maybe disagree a little bit when when talking about the the similarities. I think like Boris Johnson and Trump have have a lot in common in that they are kind of able to um, shatter what some people think of as political norms. By being sort of, uh, you know, in Boris's case, kind of projecting this sort of laughable joviality on one hand, and also as a kind of anti-elitist, like man of the people, kind of kind of thing, um, and like that's that's very much not the kind of Blairite end of history style of politics of like, I am like a shiny and like relatable, charming person, but who is ultimately a bureaucrat and you can trust me because I am competent and I know what I'm doing. Like that's very much not what like Boris Johnson projects. Like Boris Johnson is basically, very open basically about lying to people, but like that kind of lying to people is a, is a sort of way he telegraphs I don't play by the rules. I don't abide by like parliamentary standards. I'm not one of these like hoity-toity expert metropolitan liberal elite type things. And that's why, perversely, that's why you can trust me. So, and, and that's where I guess I would, you know, I, th- I think beating Trump at any point yeah. on, in a second like is going to be a really, really tall task. And I don't think that like if Bernie gets a nomination, he's got it in the bag, far from it. But uh, I just think that like there's a certain tranche of like democratic like members of the democratic party who think that like respectability is what people want and respectability politics is kind of what some people want but it's not it's going to be blown out the water by trump's ability to like capture the zeitgeist of like anger and like speak to people on an emotional level and that's what bernie can do or can do much better than him it's why he seems irrespectable um like un respectable is that a word yes it mm, something yeah, like that sure um, uh, sure um, we, get, we get what you mean yeah you know what i mean um <laughs> uh, uh you know that and like maybe like maybe like a little bit of anti-semitism um 
but like I think like the the very fact that he he doesn't seem electable like in the classic sense will be one of his strengths because he is an outsider and I think like you know that's something that can deflate Trump's so like sham anti-elitism thing maybe anyway you know I think ultimately I think Joe Biden's going to get the nomination and then get absolutely bodied by (laughs) um by Trump and the only silver lining from that like the only silver lining from that is that like that is like that should be a nail in the coffin of like third way Blairite respectability politics hopefully i mean these people never you fucking would think. learn these oh. people never fucking yeah. learn you would yeah. think in 2016 that might have been that but it, apparently it was not so. yeah gosh. Uh, yeah i think if you lose to trump twice uh in spectacular fashion both times um it should be the end and i have plans with with folks if that is the case to call for that and that we're putting in place um that said, I think that might be a futile effort because I just think the people are just so beholden to these people and see folks like Biden and Obama and and Clinton and Pelosi as just like the authority in democratic politics. I don't know how many people would be sufficiently convinced that losing to Trump two times is actually a sign that they are leading you the wrong way. I don't know. Well, because we'll if see. they do lose yeah, to Trump, we'll they're see. just going to blame Bernie and the Bernie bros and all that stuff. Oh, and yeah. they're going to do the exact Absolutely. same thing they did last time. And a lot of people Absolutely. will believe it. Yep. Yeah, but okay, the, well, well, Eleanor, the, we're going a little long here, but um, we're going a little bit long here. But thank you so much for joining the show to break this stuff down for us. It was really interesting to uh, hear your take on all this stuff. Before okay. we sign off, do you just want to let everyone know where they can find you uh, on Twitter.com and elsewhere or whatever? <laughs> I mean, like everyone else uh, right now who is self-isolating, you can find me on the Internet all the time. Um, at, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's uh, Elena K, the letter Penny on Twitter and I basically have zero other social media presence so I'm just like vesting my whole life into the hell site and loving it but yeah come say hi great thanks we'll we'll keep in touch and we'll talk to you again soon <laughs> take care thank you for listening to the insurgents please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, and please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot, but please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban, so please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye. Goodbye.